right, man. Welcome to the intro for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast, episode number 58. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and we are going to talk about masonry and the kind of Masonic beginnings to the United States. Um, notice I did not say the United States of America. There is a reason for that. Uh, there is no United States of America as far as we can tell anymore. It's simply the United States. This is demonstrated in how we talk about the military. We say the U.S. Navy, United States Navy, not United States of America Navy or Army or Air Force or any of these things because the United States is a corporation. Jason identifies the year within this conversation, which we have done before, that Washington, D.C. was incorporated um, apparently the Constitution was revised at that time. Anyhow, this is an interesting episode. Um, every time we talk about masonry, I kind of have mixed feelings. Um, when I got out of the Marine Corps, a lot of my friends lived in cities and industries where nearly everyone they work with is at a Masonic Lodge. They're doing things like serving the community and other things. These are not bad people, and that is why I sometimes put off talking about masonry. But it's not really a good reason not to talk about it, I guess, which is why we're doing this episode. Um, the problem with masonry is clearly at the leadership levels, which is true of government or any of the other things we look at. Corporations, um, for some reason, when human beings get power, they start to cast aside things and devalue their fellow man and take advantage of large groups of people. And that's really what this is about, but more so... When you were in school, you learned histories, and these histories are fraudulent. Uh, George Washington was not the first president, and while we can't be 100% sure how many came before him, we can have an idea, and that is covered in the episode here, too. Um, in terms of masonry and the need to cover it in this episode, I would point out there have been some false flag events around the world, and while I don't watch the news or dissect them anymore because I don't want that nonsense in my head, um, the truth is, is that the population as a whole can't really ignore it because to ever do something about it or for enough people to be standing up and say they've had it with this BS, people do have to pay attention. But the numerical encoding is often what begins to tip people off to false events and get them to look more closely at which point the details begin to rip down the whole lie that's being presented to the world. Uh, in the case of one of the recent false flags, so many people came and began to talk about the master number, 22, which, of course, can be associated to masonry. As uh, they moved along, they began to associate death with the number 4 or 44, death's doors. So this encoding is often attributed to masonry. And whether or not the roots of encoding numerically this way are attributable to masonry as the foundational root, I don't think that's really true, but clearly the, the organization has done this. It has done it in its histories. It does it in the world news. It does it all over the place. And many people would say, well, how do you know? Well, I would point out some obvious things. One of the things we cover in this episode is the Queen of England has her own Masonic logo. If the Queen of England has a Masonic logo, let me tell you something. That organization is doing nothing good for the people. People at that leadership level have shown us over and over and over that they lie that they cheat, that they steal, that they take advantage of the population and have for probably generations, if we could see clearly back that far. Um, as an example, the death of Prince was nothing more than a tribute to the Queen of Britain. So we can see these things, and whenever you see oil being poured into milk, you pretty much know you shouldn't be drinking the milk. Am I right? 
pretty sure I'm right. Um, anyhow, this is a very interesting episode. The first hour is just jam-packed with so much information about masonry because Jason has been on this trail for a long, long time. And while I did, in fact, do my homework to keep up with Jason in this episode, um, the second hour really begins to get it. Um, there is, I mean, it's just a lot to understand. Anyhow, let's just jump in. Let's jump in with Jason for episode 58 and talk about masonry and the founding of the United States, not the United States of America. You see, America is missing. Anyhow, cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 58. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and we're going to be talking a bit about uh, masonry and the Masonic founding of the United States of America. Uh, I know Jason has probably delved into this a lot more than I have, although I did do my research for this episode. Uh, he's been at the whole Masonic thing quite a while. Um, anyhow, how are you, Jason? I'm wonderful, Crow. And tell me, are you a traveling man? <laughs> well, you see, that's a funny thing, because if I answer that question, I'm not sure if you're asking me if I'm a traveling man or if I'm simply a traveling man. Um, I am, in fact, a traveling man, but I'm not really a traveling man. Did you follow all that? I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, man, it's I, I think right now it's raining again. I mean, it's rained all spring long. I think we've had the one of the top five wettest springs on record here. Uh, every time we get a sunny day and I'm getting ready to bust out the scope, um, I've got to hope that the moon's in the right position to do it because, you know, it's not in the right position all month long. But lo and behold, every single day that we get up into the 70s in any modicum of blue sky, the, the chem planes are just on us. I mean, it's been one hell of a spring here. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even really feel like we're, we're into spring, uh, gauging by the weather. Is it more like fall? Um, it's more like it just won't click over. You know, the flowers bloomed. Um, you know, you always see uh, the daffodils. You know, they're pretty much the first things you see, the crocus and the daffodils. So you see that happen. But usually shortly after that, you start feeling warmer. And it's just been wet and cold, man, for a long, long time here. Well, I think it's important for your fans out there to know that you're not being deliberately annoying, not filming. It's just that uh, the conditions just aren't there. No, it's 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 tough here because, you know, I'm not doing it in the winter. I just can't I can't sit out there um, in 30s and 40s for hours on end because you just can't concentrate or I can't. You know, I'm from San Diego. Uh, weather like that, even when I'm bundled up, is killing me, man. My eyes are even freezing. But anyhow, um, let's push forward. Let's jump into this episode. You've got quite a list here. And, you know, maybe by the time we're done, People will have a slightly different view on things like, all in all, we're just another brick in the wall, or maybe, you know, we built this city. Uh, what we're going to talk about is pervasive. It is everywhere in our culture, and I don't really think there's much denying that the founding of this nation uh, is intermingled uh, with masonry. No, there's no doubt at all, and uh, one of the things that we both uh, discussed a little while ago was the fact that the one thing the masons are good at is keeping records, so we, we know... Uh, a lot about these people and what they, they may have done because it's recorded in, in the lodges. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because being a Mason a generation ago or even a little more than a generation ago was a pretty common thing if you were in the right city, if you were in the right job. Um, on my father's side, 
as far as I know, my grandfather, or maybe it was a great-grandfather, were all Masons, and on my mother's side, too. And I remember asking my mom after my father died, you know, is there any of that stuff around? And she said, there must be. I scoured, man. There is nothing here. And I thought, how could these people have been Masons? And there's, you know, I'd love to see a Masonic Bible to be able to go through it. I've seen them before online, or, you know, maybe some of the publications, but there is literally nothing here. And it's a strange thing. I mean, what, did someone from the lodge come close? collect all that stuff when they died? Is that how it works? Yeah, actually, I've heard of that. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. It depends but... upon who you were and what you did, you know, if you had stuff that they wouldn't necessarily want to get in other people's hands. Well, it's funny because even friends from the Marine Corps, you know, a number of them are in big cities and uh, they're in Masonic lodges and they're just working people. And, you know, we should probably get this out on the table. The average neighbor that you have that's in a Masonic lodge is just a person living. Um, and I in no way, shape, or form intend to have anything I say in this episode be slighted against people simply because they belong to a Masonic Lodge. That's not what I'm referring to here. Um, like It's a bit like going to another country and saying you're an American and having ha- having someone treat you bad because you're an American when really you have nothing to do with that. You're just a person. It's the governments that are the jackasses, you know, the people at the top um, doing all this stuff. So I just want to put that on the table. But, you know, as as you and I got ready to do this, Jason, we were looking at that uh, that logo, Queen Elizabeth's Masonic logo, and we were trying to figure out how is it if she's female, how is it that she's a Mason? Um I don't know. We we didn't get to the bottom of it. Maybe there's something about the ruler um, being, um, you know, honored in or something. But it's a strange, strange thing. I didn't think uh, women were allowed to partake in the whole Mason thing. They're they're not as far as the the straightforward regular Freemasonry. That's all male as far as anyone else is concerned. Now, maybe there's something different with the royalty and aristocracy. Uh, what the women would be in, in is called the Order of the Eastern Star, which is all female. So... That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because in the logo, it's E-R, which would be Elizabeth R. I think her true name is something like Elizabeth Alexandra or something like that. I I think I'm close on the last part. But whenever you see that R um, and you look up what it means, you see things like Regina or if it was a king, it would be Rex or, uh, you know, Imperator or Empress or something like that is what that R is standing for, I guess. And that that is what's in the logo. As a matter of fact, I believe the first tweet the Queen ever did was signed, excuse me, Elizabeth R. But anyhow, we've got quite a list. I'll just kick it straight over to you and let's uh, start traveling, hint, hint, down this road. (laughs) So as I jokingly said to you at the open here, have you ever heard the phrase, are you a traveling man? Or perhaps, are you a fellow traveler? Do you travel from west to east where the sun rises? Well, these these are things that Freemasons will say to each other if they're trying to find out the person across from them is indeed a, a, a brother. So Freemasonry, which they frequently will call the craft, believes in light. It is a massive part of all of their extensive rituals. Light, to a Freemason, symbolizes knowledge and intellect. And, of course, who is the patron god of light? Why, it's our old friend Lucifer, of course. Lucifer, meaning the light bearer or the light bringer, as we've discussed many times, and I think that's one that everybody kind of knows these days. Um, This is not necessarily, however, the Christian devil or Satan, as the public mainstream notion likes to assume all the time. A lot of who and what Lucifer is implied to be, especially with the higher-ranking Freemasons, it's actually, uh, he's the good guy. Or maybe it's she. I'm not entirely certain. I've seen references to both. The Freemasonic version of God 
overall is called The Great Architect of the Universe. You know, we've talked about this whole Lucifer thing. We've even done an episode where we demonstrated that pretty much the story of Prometheus or the myth of Prometheus is just a different version or maybe an earlier version of the Luciferian tale. And we've covered and I'll cover it once again here um, in the view of the people that are in this mindset. It seems best best guess I can make uh, best educated guess I can make is what they are espousing goes something like this. Lucifer was a brave person who stood up for human beings at great risk for him to himself against God, and he got slammed down hard for it. Therefore, Lucifer is a hero. As far as I can tell, that's the narrative um, that these people are behind. And I think you rightly point out here um, that there is clearly, (laughs) to quote Zeppelin, which is apropos, um, there are two paths you can go down, (laughs) but in the long run. On the one hand, you have kind of the Western religious people. Whenever they hear the word Lucifer, they're thinking the devil. And on the other hand, all these other people who are talking about the light bringer, Lucifer, the morning star, all these things that are associated with Freemasonry are thinking about something totally different. And the problem here is, is that the one side mixes what they are thinking with what the other side is thinking, although I must say uh, the Masonic side of things looks down on on Christians, I think, in in a way as ignorant. And we kind of covered this a bit, didn't we, in the, uh, in the Masonic encoding of religion episode we did. Yeah, and, and here's the thing folks need to know, that uh, if you go to a lodge and even a, a try to get in, the first thing they're going to want to know is if you have some sort of spiritual belief. They're not going to turn you away if you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, but you have to have a belief in a supreme being, and that's because you have to be open to the notion of a supreme being. They happen to call that supreme being the great architect of the universe. Now, a lot of folks will argue that it's not a religion, but Freemasonry does have its own religious aspect, and they'll even call it that, uh, that the higher up you go, you start finding things out more. Right. Um, Harkening back to where uh, we were talking about the King of England at the time in the 1800s, I've forgotten exactly where, mid to late, I think, if I remember correctly, um, and how they were viewing everyone else who wasn't above the Royal Arch degrees of Freemasonry. In other words, who didn't understand what these top three guys did. Uh, King, guy named Carlisle, Duke of something. Um, And the, the claim was made there that the word Christian the word Jew, the word Israelite, and the word Hebrew were nothing more than levels of initiation, that there had never been a country or a people um, that were specific. Like if you said uh, someone is Mexican, maybe, you know they come from Mexico, you know they tend to have that lineage uh, that would give them all the attributes of being Mexican. they were saying the exact opposite. They were saying that Christian was the lowest level. And I think if I've got it right, Jew was next, Israelite was next. And then as you got towards the Royal Arch degrees, it was Hebrew. And that opened up a whole can of worms about the book of Hebrews in the Bible, which clearly is loaded with Masonic language. But anyhow, I kind of feel like I'm pulling you off track here, Jason. I'll throw it back over to you. All right. Well, Freemasonry calls itself a fraternity. That's what it's openly stated as to the public. And the definition of a fraternity is a group of people sharing a common profession or interests. A lot of official Freemason history claims it was all about stoneworking in the Middle Ages that kind of got this all together. But to keep the organization growing, it opened up its its membership to others. So to start things off, here's the 
description in history of the Freemasons from an official Masonic website that I took. And what's interesting is I looked at a bunch of them, and not all of them even have the exact same wording. So, you know, these these guys are interesting. I'll just leave it at that. No one knows with certainty how or when the Masonic fraternity was formed. A widely accepted theory among Masonic scholars is that it arose from the Stonemasons Guild during the Middle Ages. The language and symbols used in the fraternity's rituals come from this era. The oldest document that makes reference to Masons is the Regius poem, printed around 1390, which was a copy of an earlier work. In 1717, four lodges in London formed the first Grand Lodge of England, and records from that point on are more complete. Within 30 years, the fraternity had spread throughout Europe and the American colonies. Freemasonry became very popular in colonial America. George Washington was a Mason. Benjamin Franklin served as the head of the fraternity in Pennsylvania, as did Paul Revere and Joseph Warren in Massachusetts. Other well-known Masons involved with the founding of America included John Hancock, John Sullivan, Lafayette, Baron Frederick von Steuben, Nathaniel Green, and John Paul Jones. Another Mason, Chief Justice John Marshall, shaped the Supreme Court into its present form. Over the centuries, Freemasonry has developed into a worldwide fraternity, emphasizing personal study, self-improvement, and social betterment via individual involvement and philanthropy. During the late 1700s, it was one of the organizations most responsible for spreading the ideals of the Enlightenment, the dignity of man and the liberty of the individual, the right of all persons to worship as they choose, the formation of democratic governments, and the importance of public education. Masons supported the first public schools in both Europe and America. During the 1800s and early 1900s, Freemasonry grew dramatically. At that time, the government had provided no social safety net. The Masonic tradition of founding orphanages, homes for widows, and homes for the aged provided the only security many people knew. Today in North America, the Masonic fraternity continues this tradition by giving almost $1.5 million each day to causes that range from operating children's hospitals, providing treatment for childhood language disorders, treating eye diseases, funding medical research, contributing to local community service, and providing care to Masons and their families at Masonic homes. The 4 million Masons worldwide continue to help the men and women face the problems of the 21st century by building bridges of brotherhood and instilling in the hearts of men ideals for a better tomorrow. <laughs> so much here to go Sounds out, man. Sounds so nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's like I'm saying, the, the guy in the lodge next door, uh, you know, in your neighborhood is just a, a working man who is probably very interested in supporting children's hospitals and other things. But once you start getting up to the top levels, and and here's my premise for that. Um, some time ago when I was doing research, trying to decide whether I could accept that Crowley and Blavatsky were actually real people, um, which I never could prove one way or the other, but I still have my suspicions um, that they are constructs. I just can't prove it outright. Um, but during that research, I came across these pretty old claims that Freemasonry originally was something wholly different. Um, a bit like the alchemy episode we did, where there was truly altruistic ideas tied to nature, um, building these, you know, what have become cathedrals. And the claim there was that many of the cathedrals we saw built by Masons were actually meant to be natural sciences uh, buildings of some sort to teach. And what happened to Masonry, and this is a claim, um, is that First, politics got involved, and then religion got involved, and that brought us the form of masonry we have now. But before I kick it back over to you, I would point out, um, whenever you're talking about, like we open with the word travelers and stuff like that, there's other places in society we see this language used, and that's unions. Um, in my lifetime, um, 
I think the height of the power of America, there was something like 37% union workers, something like that, in the neighborhood of 37%. Recently, I heard a number, don't know if it's true, that we were down to around 5 6 or 7% of union. But within unions, I have known many people that have worked, even my own family, so many teachers in my immediate family, and there's always a teacher's union if you're a teacher. But other people in the blue collar trades will always, if they leave the city they're in to go work somewhere else, they're called travelers. And there's even a traveler's book when they get there. So you can, and they're also, you know, on their union logos, it's a fraternity, a brotherhood. Um, so you can see the language moved all over the place. But anyhow, um, what's your view, Jason? Do you think there's any, any merit to the idea that uh, masonry originally was something vastly different that it now is, that it's so politically and religiously mixed up with things? Well, what I really think is that it started with these ancient mystery schools that we are always hearing spoken about in conspiracy circles. Now, as far as more modern unions and things like that, you pretty much have to join those things if you're do if you're employed doing certain kinds of jobs and there's a union, you're going pretty much going to get bullied into being part of that union and you know, they they kind of dissolved a lot over the years, but there's still a few big ones out there, and the, this stuff all gets intertwined. There's absolutely no doubt that any kind of fraternity or secret society, once you get up to the higher levels, they're kind of pushing the same agenda. Well, I, you, you've seen all the movies like The Teamsters, the idea of The Teamsters, how one man had control of all that, you know, and, and he could literally bring the trucks in this country to a stop, uh, it was claimed. And so, you know, you're, you're rightly pointing out that, you know, it's, it seems like every time human beings get in position of power, um, bad things start to happen. But um, in your view, is there any is there any there there? to buying into the idea um, that this is based in some ancient mystery school that is truly ancient? Or do you think we're really looking at a more modern construct? I think it got rearranged over the years from what I can tell because the symbolism is definitely drawn from ancient Egypt, as I'm about to get into. And the, the problem is, when would the whole Lucifer worship thing have come into it? Like, I don't think Lucifer is really discussed in ancient Egypt, so... It's very shadowy, like it's hard to nail these things down. If indeed that the uh, the Scottish Rite especially came from the Knights Temple and all that, well, that was a Middle Ages kind of thing. But then there's the whole problem that, as you and I have discussed, we're not sure if, if mainstream history is actually the way things really went down, that, that there may actually be a gap that uh, got added that didn't actually really happen. Yeah, I'm I'm nearly convinced that there is a damn good reason to go down that road. Matter of fact, I'm as close as I can be. Um, I'm never certain of anything, I guess. Truth be told, I can only come as close as I can come, and I'm prepared to throw it out the next day if I learn something new. But I really do suspect that the Middle Ages are what's called the Dark Ages or the dividing line. And as I began to look at ancient Egypt, since you're about to go there in this narrative, um, things do not wash. When you go in with a clean mind— and throw out all the stuff you've been told and all the movies you've seen and all the books you've read and all the school you've attended. You throw all that stuff to the sides and come in with a clean eye and start to take apart the monolithic structures, the hieroglyphs, the stories, the Rosetta Stone. When you start to go at all those things, it doesn't wash for me anymore. Um, and I really do suspect that those supposed ancient things we're being shown are a lot more modern than we may suspect. But anyhow, I'll kick it back over to you and you can start to 
travel to Egypt. <laughs> and what that means is that thousands of years gets truncated down to hundreds of years, and therefore the connection between Egyptian and more modern masonry would make a lot more sense. But a much more likely version of Masonic history definitely begins, or would would most likely begin in ancient Egypt, and some Masonic documents will actually openly admit this. Because many of the symbols and notions come directly from the Egyptian, although some of the meanings seem to have uh, had alternate usages at different times through the centuries. Egypt absolutely had what was known as the mystery schools, and it is from one or more of these that is the likely origin. And there is absolutely no doubt that there's a direct connection with the Knights Templar, and uh, one of the rites even has Knights Templar as a rank or a degree. So these things are absolutely intertwined, and it, as I said earlier, it seems that pretty much all of the, any kind of secret society that's out there, when you start looking at them at their highest level, they seem to be all intertwined. Yeah, there's no getting away from it. And all the research that I've done in my lifetime, um, what I have found is it is very likely that any mystery school you can point to, regardless of whether it's ancient or more modern or whatever the claim being made is, is they're all in the same vein. Um, it's not like one mystery school had all this hocus pocus magic that another one didn't. Um, that they're all the same. But what you really tend to find is that what happened in a lot of the Eastern religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, other uh, Chinese religions and things that kind of, you know, it's almost like the religions that had to do a lot with meditation. Um, those became the basis for much of what became masonry and other things. So it's almost like there was these mystery schools that hit the age of religion and it got into there and we kept coming down the road, that kind of thing going on. Um, it's a hard thing to know, but I would mention before I kick it back to you, um, most people can go on YouTube and look up the, there used to be a clip. I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, someone had come across a Masonic Bible and uh, they filmed it and put a clip up on YouTube. I've always wanted to get my hands on a Masonic Bible, which is why I was scouring our house and all the old boxes hoping I could find something to check it out. Because in that Masonic Bible, what you find is the Christian idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in these Masonic Bibles is refashioned to show Osiris, Isis, and I guess Horus, mm -hmm. um, as the triune deity. Um, and I think people can go on YouTube and look that up. But have you seen this, Jason? Yeah, I, I've seen, well, I don't know if I've seen the same clip as you, but I've seen someone holding up a Masonic Bible and showing uh, all the Egyptian stuff in there. And basically, you're, you're correct. It, it always comes back to that triune God. And I'm not sure which one's the oldest. Uh, it could be the Indian as well. I'm for blanking on the, on, the, on the Indian names. But it all comes back to the same thing, and that's that concept of, of three as one. Right. There, there is no getting away from it. And, you know, I almost wonder if I've just been stupid, if I could just go online and buy a Bible like that. I wonder if you could or whether there has to be some secret handshake to get your hands on it. But, you know, I've always I've I've studied the Bible. I would imagine of all the things that I've studied in my life that the Christian Bible, versions of the Christian Bibles, many versions of the Christian Bibles, uh, have been among the things that I've studied the most. Um, so I would really love to get my hands on one of those and take it apart. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing down the road here, Jason. The one thing about the, the Bible thing that might be very interesting is that a lot of families probably still have them because pre-birth certificates, that is what they use to record births in the, in the right. family home. So a lot of these families may actually just still have them and they're not, they're not just floating around out there. So, you know, that's a, I, I'm that's sure a they good exist. Point. I'm sure they still yeah, exist. Yeah. 
Uh, that's a good point. Um, and, and I would state, I still remember from the episode we did on uh, your name being traded as stock or as chattel on the stock market, that the way that went down was that prior to the Census Bureau being set up in the United States, and if I remember the date correctly, I think it's 20 or uh, 1916 or 1918, uh, one of those two dates. Uh, before that, all deaths and births were recorded in the Bible, just so people remember what we're talking about here. And all officialdom accepted that as a legal document. If you had a Bible that stated these things, oh, this person was born then or this person died, then they accepted that. When the Bureau of Census came into being in the United States in the early 1900s is when that all began to fall apart and we started moving towards basically what is admiralty law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean, that this is it. Just is what it is. That's that's the way it was. And then as they corporatized everything, you know, everything got got run through the state. Yeah, I'd rather just write stuff in a Bible. How about you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, keep keep the government out of our business. That would be nice. Yeah, exactly. So this next point, I want to get to. There's no conclusive proof of this, but I've seen repeated mentioning that all of Freemasonry is ruled over by something called the Hidden Masters or some sort of round table of nine. I don't know what that means exactly. I'm assuming that means that it's just the very few at the very tippy top, but um, they're not going to obviously advertise themselves. But I thought I'd throw it out there because it does get mentioned. But what is a fact is the existence of what's called the House of the Temple, which is a Masonic temple in Washington, D.C., that serves as the headquarters of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. It's officially stated as the home of the Supreme Council, 33rd degree, ancient and accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, Washington, D.C., USA. <laughs> By the way, anything to do with Freemasonry is ungodly wordy. I'm not trying to be annoying when I say these things. I'm just reading them exactly as they state, and my goodness, they love their rituals. God, I was going to say self-important much, but the, the <laughs> truth of it is, as I'm looking at, at your notes here, Jason, I'm wondering what's encrypted in that long list of you know vowels and consonants. Almost certainly um, there has to be information encrypted in there. But I mean, you, you're about to even do a longer version of, of one of these names, aren't you? Yeah. So this temple was designed by John Russell Pope. It stands at 1733 16th Street Northwest in the DuPont Circle neighborhood, about one mile directly north of the White House. The full name of the Supreme Council is... Take a breath. Take a very deep breath. (laughs) The Supreme Council, Mother Council of the World, of the Inspectors General, Knights Commander of the House of the Temple of Solomon of the 33rd degree of the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry of the Southern Jurisdiction of the United States of America. You had to inhale three times to say that, dude. (laughs) Go ahead. And this place contains a museum devoted to Albert Pike, who rewrote a number of the Scottish Rite rituals and headed the Supreme Council from 1859 until his death in 1891, and whose remains are buried in the House of the Temple. And we'll get more on him later. So this is something you you would walk by every day if you were in Washington, D.C. It's it's right there, and I've seen pictures of it, and it's, it's this massive thing with two sphinxes out front and everything. And... So they they definitely keep playing on that Egyptian motif, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, but it's one of those buildings. Like like here in New England, um, and I mentioned this on an earlier show, there were two granite quarries here in Rhode Island, which apparently produced some of the best granite anywhere uh, around in the United States. As a matter of fact, 
um, all the Gettysburg monuments and stuff like that were built. All the big stuff in New York and the rich people's cemetery stuff was all built with this Rhode Island granite um, because of its strength and, and carvability and all these reasons. I watched a show on it. Very interesting show. They brought all the Masons in um, early on when they started quarrying this granite from Europe. And I've always suspected that Rhode Island must be integrally tied to the development of Freemasonry in this country, which I may look into at one point. Um, geez, I lost my thread, Jason. Where the hell was I going when I started down this road? Well, when you're saying about the, the granite used for probably all the temples and all that, oh, Rhode, yeah. Rhode Island is definitely going to be important because it's one of the original 13 colonies. And as we'll see when I get into some of the other history later, all of the colonies had very important lodges in them and, and different members. And this all had to do with the war and the Revolutionary War and all that. So, yeah. Right. Well, what I was going to say is if anyone goes on Google Earth and looks at the building Jason just mentioned in Washington, D.C., I mean, it's striking. There's no way you're ever going to walk by a building like that and, and just, you know, take it for another building. There's something different about that building. But, you know, when you look at the layout of, of all the streets and everything that's been done around Freemasonry in Washington, there's absolutely a there there. But you see, I get a sense of that here in Rhode Island because so many of the buildings here were built out of the Rhode Island granite, which means they were built by Masons. And these were not, what are the two types, types of Masons? There's the... Uh, the Scottish Rite and the York Rite. No, I'm talking about the guys who either carve stone or they don't. Um, oh, that's that's yeah. There's the the, the actual direct masons or or yeah. speculative. There you go, speculative or actually the guys with their hands on uh, stone, which I forgot the word for that. So you know all this stuff was built, but it's it's a whole other thing going on there. I mean, the buildings are beautiful. Um, they're well designed. They're stunning to look at, and the level of craftsmanship that went into them is above and beyond. So I'm just pointing out that whenever you're walking through life and you see these granite buildings carved out, there's something to look at there. You know, these things were not just done on a whim. No, and if you think about this in the far past, you know, a couple hundred years ago, just think how these buildings would have stood out against the rest of the buildings that would have been kind of not as impressive. Yeah, it's a funny thing, too, because in this uh, show that I just watched on the Rhode Island granite quarries, the two big ones that were here, um, what they're claiming now, they interviewed the last surviving um, – practicing masons that's what they're called the guys who are actually carving the stone and they were going into these cemeteries here in rhode island the cemeteries are just full of like angels carved out of solid granite where their fingers are articulated i mean it's amazing to see and they took these old um masons in and they were naming oh i knew the mason and who did this because that's his style and they were talking about you know if they chipped a finger that's it the whole thing's ruined it's pretty amazing thing to see but my point here is that they said this is the last generation of actually hands-on masons they're getting rarer and rarer because all the stuff down in gettysburg a lot of it's needing repair and in new york where all the rhode island granite went it's needing repair apparently they can't find any practicing masons or enough practicing masons that that even are qualified to go in and do the repairs anymore and i was just thinking i don't know if you have a, a view on this jason how can that be because one thing we know about the masons is they're big on keeping their history they're big on keeping everything written down and keep track of, they encode the hell out of everything. How could it possibly be um, that practicing Masons um, are, are, there's a shortage of them at this point. Do you think that's a true thing? 
I think so because as I'm going to get into next when I start explaining what you deal with when you get go into a lodge and be, try to become a mason, it's all speculative. I mean the vast majority of it. I'm sure there's a few stone workers still out there. They don't teach you how to be a stone worker. And, you know, right. maybe there was some validity to the fact that it started as various stone stonemason guilds getting together as an organization. That may be, but they don't teach it in, in anything I've found. It's all about ritual and rites, and um, it's very alchemical. It's supposed to be about your building yourself. Yeah, so there it is, man. I mean, if it is true that practicing Masons are in high demand and there's a severe shortage and that the people who most of us alive now would be grandparents or great-grandparents or last generation who really had to do with this, it really says something about what has become of Masonic organizations. After all, people who carved stone and built amazing buildings are the foundations, to make a pun, for the Masonic organization. And I just find it stunning that an organization like this that's dumping a million dollars a day for this, that, or the other thing would not have a vested interest in ensuring that practicing Masons were constantly in our world, ready to carve stone and build a beautiful building somewhere. I just think it's a very telling thing. Now, what I would be very curious about, not that they would openly admit it, is do they have old books in some of these lodges that we know are hundreds of years old, back when people would still do that kind of work for a living? You know, do they have manuals on these things, you know, how things were done. I would think that they would because I've heard plenty of stories of Masonic libraries. In fact, I know a girl whose father ran the whole of Masonic, uh, the whole area in a state. And she told me when she was a little girl, she had actually been to parts of, in parts of the lodge where they had a big library with really old books from the 17 and 1800s. So um, going off of that, I'd say that they probably do have the information, but are they applying it is the question. Right. Well, I think, again, I think it's a telling thing. Within my lifetime here in the state of Rhode Island, there were men making their living, carving um, monuments for cemeteries, carving other things for buildings in New York, for mausoleums in New York, for the Gettysburg um, stuff. That's within my lifetime. And so uh, the way that it was explained as I was looking at this, was that originally the guys came over from Europe who had all the the stone carving skill, and they apprenticed. And so there became, and it was almost divided by cultural lines too, like the Irish had one job, the Italians, I guess a lot of the Italians were carvers, um, but it was divided like that in in the Rhode Island quarries where uh, most of the, if I have this right, I hope I have this right, um, most of the practicing stone carving masons um, that had come over, not cutters or movers or shapers or all these other things that were done, um, came from Italy and other places. So I'm just saying within my lifetime, that is a thing that is falling off. And so to me, um, that's an important thing. You know, people who have these skill sets who can build beautiful things and make something more than a damn you know, cube or a box or a rectangle that we all live in now, all the buildings we go into now, truly make something that is amazing. Um, This is falling by the wayside. And maybe that tells us something about what the head of the Masonic leadership is really doing and what they're really interested in. Yeah. And to put a capstone on that, all I can say is for those of you out there who do know how to do this work, good God, make sure that it gets passed on. We don't want it to become a lost art. No, man. You know, one of these days when the rain stops, I'll actually take my good camera out to some of the um, cemeteries here 
and I'll just I'll shoot some of the things that the the carvers carved out of granite and it is stunningly mind-blowing to see like a pinky finger articulated on an angel knowing that if he did the wrong thing and that finger broke there's no way to fix it and the whole monument would be a total loss um it's an amazing thing to see anyhow let's let's keep pushing so I'm going to give you some background on the Masonic Lodge and when someone decides to become a member. So you start off in what's called the Blue Lodge or the Mother Lodge, and this is where you get your first three degrees. After that, you can then choose to go on, if you wish, to either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite. But the vast majority of Freemasons don't go any further than this. They always wear, as you've probably seen in pictures, the white sheepskin apron. And this is said to be a symbolical representation of the coverings that Adam and Eve made for themselves to hide themselves from God. And God afterwards gave them coverings of animal skins. And this is supposed to be how God knew that they ate from the, uh, the tree that they weren't supposed to have. Masons are said to be buried in these aprons to have this covering when they face God. So, let's get into the the first three degrees. Masonic ritual is designed around the symbolic story of the building of a great spiritual temple as represented by the Temple of Solomon. The three Masonic degrees are designed to represent three stages of life, youth, manhood, and older age. The Entered Apprentice degree is the first, and it represents youth because it teaches the most basic lessons of belief in God, the necessity of charity to mankind, the importance of truth, and the value of keeping one's word. Now, just to put this in here, when I say the word God, I'm not saying which God it is, and I can tell you that no Mason has ever admitted that the name Jesus Christ is ever spoken in a Masonic temple. It, it's not. It's not in the rituals as far as I can tell. Right. Um, there's a couple couple things here, and I think we have to hearken back um, to the episode we did uh, where a man who, who, who was taught divinity by the Vatican up to roughly the PhD level got his hand on two one of two books that came into England. They were the top Masonic texts of their time. The king and his two buddies got the other one. Um, and this reverend was able to put it together. And having been trained by the Vatican, he began to understand that so much of it was just simply encoding the allegory of the sky um, that the priesthood had done back in the day. But in that research and in that study, the top three guys were basically of a mind that there never was a kingdom of David, that there never was a Solomon's temple in real life, like where the Wailing Wall is now. In their view, that's just a wall. There was never a Solomon's temple outside. In their view, it was all metaphors for what happens to a human being internally. In other words, maybe the, the temple of Solomon being your pineal gland in, in your brain, um, that kind of idea. But I, I figured I'd throw it out because it is in the research we did in, in past episodes, Jason. Yeah. Now, I've heard it said, although I can't find where exactly this comes from, that Solomon is actually a combination of the three words soul, om, and on, which are all words for light. Didn't I think we may have covered that in, in that episode. Um, I, I just don't remember. But I mean, the, the, the main takeaway for me here is that you're looking at the only three guys, apparently, that were above Royal Arch. In other words, they if, if there were any secrets to be known, they knew them all, and everyone below them did not. Um, so it, it still strikes me to this day to consider that these three guys running all this, the king, Carlisle, and a duke of something, um, were basically treating everyone under them as ignorant people. 
allowing them to believe in nonsense, teaching them nonsense. And I guess the path being, if you're ever lucky enough to make it where these three guys are sitting, you might get told a truth of some sort someday. But my main point here is they viewed all those biblical stories as nothing more than metaphor and encoded allegory to hide a secret. And that's the way they viewed it. That's, that's what I think is, is the reality as well. So to show the direct relationship between alchemy, which we obviously went into heavy detail on a few few weeks ago, and what it, it calls its great work, which is a phrase that is reused in uh, Freemasonry, here is a portion of the Ceremony of the Entered Apprentice, just to show that how these things, as I said earlier, are so intertwined, it's basically the same thing. So these words would be spoken by the worshipful master, who is the head of the lodge. That's the title used. I now present to you the working tools of an entered apprenticed Freemasonry. They are the 24-inch gauge, the common gavel, and chisel. The 24-inch gauge to measure our work, the common gavel to knock off all superfluous knobs and ex excrescences, and the chisel to further smooth and prepare the stone and render it fit for the hands of the more expert workmen. But as we are not all operative masons, but rather free and accepted or speculative, we apply these tools to our morals. In this sense, the 24-inch gauge represents the 24 hours of the day, part to be spent in prayer to Almighty God, part in labor and refreshment, and part in serving a friend or brother in time of need, without detriment to ourselves or connections. The common gavel represents the force of conscience, which should keep down all vain and unbecoming thoughts which might obtrude during any of the aforementioned periods, so that our words and actions may ascend unpolluted to the throne of grace. The chisel points out to us the advantages of education, by which means alone we are rendered fit members of regularly organized society. So, man, the, the ideas that are being expressed here and the kind of state of mind that I take away from it, if I was to work backwards, um, I could see a direct linkage to Buddhism, which I have studied for years um, extensively, Hinduism, other ancient Eastern supposed ancient Eastern religions, and ultimately, probably the oldest of all, alchemy. I mean, uh, you, you can see it in, in every, almost every word you just spoke. Yeah, and it's, all of these things seem to be focusing on the same thing, and that's spiritual development of self, and the rest is just window dressing if I want to really just tear it all down. Yeah, it's a funny thing, because if we were to take, like, Buddhism, the idea here is um, that a person would do things like um, pray all day so their mind doesn't wander. I guess the, the Western idea would be idle hands or the devil's playthings. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the Eastern idea, it's we do all these things to keep our mind pure and fresh, which is echoed in this. But you see, in the Buddhist tradition, the reason that person is doing that is not only to free themselves from what they considering suffering. In other words, anyone alive is, is subject to suffering and there's no getting out of it. That's why they're doing this. But more so, they're doing it for the benefit of what they call all sentient beings. So basically what that comes down to is this person is trying to free themselves, but at the same time doing these things because every living being needs help getting away from the suffering. But then when we come up to, to masonry, it seems watered down and perverted to me. It seems uh, self-indulgent. It seems like it's for an exclusive group of people. And it seems to not have any reflection or concern for 
I guess, what the Buddhists would call sentient or living beings other than those members of the lodge. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, you know, I don't even need to go anymore. I, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I, it's it's and there's no getting away from it. It seems like a very kind of materialistic, westernized, watered down version of these supposed older ideas, which were in fact implemented to not only free the individual practicing from what they perceived as a world that will continually deliver suffering, but for every other living being trapped in the same situation. But anyhow, back to you. So we're going to move on to the second degree, which is called the fellow craft, which represents manhood or the mill period of life. During this degree, the importance of education and work and the awesome power of God are taught to the Mason. And the third degree is the Master Mason. The Master Mason degree is the third and last degree ritual of the Lodge. In the course of the degree, the new Master Mason is taught the importance of living a life true to the principles of morality and virtue. Now, these three degrees are represented in such things in real life as the bench upon which a judge sits being three steps high looking down on you or the altar where a priest stands being three steps high looking down on you and let's not forget what both of these entities wear and they wear the black robe of saturn as does the graduate who wears not only the black robe of saturn but the square mortarboard of freemasonry you see you see in the, in the freemasonry rituals a lot of them a lot of the time, are also wearing the black robe of Saturn. So these things, as we've just been discussing, seem to be really intertwined, going farther and farther back in history, however far it really goes. They seem to be drawing from a lot of the same stuff. You know, it's it, as you finished up the third degree description of the Master Mason, you ended up by saying living a life true to principle of morality and virtue you know, I heard someone say recently, and I thought, boy, what a true thing. Um, they said, every time a lie is told, some portion of the world dies. So if, in fact, the leaders of these organizations are complicit in the false flags we see in encoding, numerically encoding things like our money, um, things like our news, all these things that we suspect that the Masons have a direct hand in the leadership or the highest levels of Masonry, then what I perceive here is people at the top saying, do as we say, not as we do. Because there is no way in hell you will ever convince me that any one of these people is living a life true to principle of morality and virtue and participating in these things. So that's where I'm at, man. Where are you at, Jason? My honest, sincere opinion on all of these secret societies is this. All of it is window dressing just to see how far a person will go through the ranks, and then once they get to the upper ranks, they can see who might actually be good for them to pull up even further to help push along the agenda that they're trying to accomplish, whatever that happens to be. Damn, that was well said, dude. Um, <laughs> that, that, no, that was well said. I, I, think, I think that is spot on. You know, early on when you started, what struck me is I was not expecting to hear you say there were only four million Masons in the world. And I think that really starts to bolster the point you just made. Um, I would have suspected there was a heck of a lot more Masons. But, you know, knowing what the King, Carlisle, and the Duke of whatever the heck he was, was doing to all the people under them, um, I don't think there's any getting away from the idea of what you just expressed. Anyhow, back to you. So now we're going to get into the founding of America and how all this interrelates. We're going to talk about a guy named 
Sir Francis Bacon, and his novel The New Atlantis, which was first published in 1627, is suggested by multiple scholars as the inspiration for what would become the new country of America. It is the story of a crew of shipwrecked sailors who land upon the shores of a mysterious unknown nation whose people had developed a culture and technology far beyond anything previously known. Considered amazingly prophetic, especially for its time, it spoke of buildings a half a mile tall, machines that flew through the air, ships that traveled beneath the sea, and a government of philosopher-scientists serving an enlightened people who were dedicated to learning and higher achievement. The New Atlantis was Bacon's vision for a new golden age, and it became the inspiration for many influential American colonists, including several of Bacon's descendants who settled in Virginia after its publication. Bacon, who many historians consider to be the true father of modern democracy and founder of America, was an avid student of what is called ancient wisdom, and he joined many secret societies during his life. In his youth, he became a member of the Order of the Helmet, a group that worshipped the goddess as Pallas Athene, the Greek goddess of truth and wisdom. It is this goddess who is 19 and a half foot tall, bronze and platinum form, now stands atop the Capitol building, gazing eastward as the Statue of Freedom in Washington, D.C., also known as the Goddess Columbia, which we will get more into later. Bacon eventually became Grand Master of the Rosicrucian Order. His earliest initiations into the mysteries had awakened him to the tone of the goddess, and his deep study of ancient wisdom texts had taught him that by stimulating certain areas of the brain, a process of inner growth and refinement could be activated, giving him second sight and the ability to perceive other dimensions. Bacon described the state of ageless consciousness as all knowledge. This all knowledge was alluded to on the title page of the first edition of the New Atlantis with a depiction of Father Time escorting a female figure out of the darkness of a cave, coming forth into the light of day. Underneath this engraving was the inscription, In Time, The Truth. And there's the alchemical connection coming out of the cave at the very end of what you just said, into the light of day. And again, we have the whole kind of mind science thing that was echoed out in earlier Eastern religions. And I would ask, if these jokers truly have second sight, um, how is it that they have no concern for the common man and the common woman? Um, If these jokers truly have second sight, how is it that they can't value a tribe in Africa or an aborigine in Australia. Um, This is where I have real problems with what we're looking at here. And you and I have covered extensively, you know, you're about to get further into Colombia. But let's talk a minute about the Statue of Liberty. Um, I remember, you know, you you addressed this at one point. Um, In the 9-11 episode we did, uh, the Statue of Liberty is really not not what it seems. And I'll, I'll let you address this a little bit, Jason. Well, the name itself is very interesting because it's called the Statue of Liberty, not the Statue of Freedom. And the definitions are very different, even though most people would never think it. Liberty is what a sailor gets when he goes on shore leave. He he gets permission from the captain, who he is indentured to, to go off the ship for a small amount of time and must report back at the prescribed time. Well... Freedom is just that. You're free. You're you're not enslaved to anyone. So right there, let's just nail down the differences to know that we don't have a Statue of Freedom symbolizing America. We have the Statue of Liberty. Who stood there holding the light, hint, hint, 
high above <laughs> his or her head and had a perfect front row seat to the 9-11 ritual. Um, so there it is. And, you know, as you, as you went over the Statue of Freedom in Washington, um, you begin to get a picture here. The next time you're in the United States of America and you see a prominent statue featured somewhere, you really need to stop and take pause and consider what is actually being memorialized there. Because certainly all this nonsense about concern for the common man is complete hogwash. And when you see things like the Queen of England having her own Masonic logo, you damn well better know what's going on. And it's not for the good of the people. That's my point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And that the Statue of Liberty is just one example. Washington, D.C. especially is absolutely littered with yep. tons of symbols. I mean, I have yet to go there myself, and when I do, I'm going to take several cameras with me. It's what these people are really into. They they kind of tell you. They put it out there, but you have to know how to read the symbols. Yeah, um, there, there's no getting away from it. And this is a big part of the spellcraft that we talk so much about. Because when you go to a place like D.C., you've had this whole other mindset inserted into you your entire life. Um, you've got to be able to set that all aside and take with clean, a clean, fresh mind and brand new eyes. Look at what you are being presented with. Look at it all. Look at the inscriptions. Look at the dates. Look at the monuments. Look at where they're pointing, how they're positioned, the stars that are above their damn heads. Look at it all, and you will start to get a truer picture of what's gone on here. All I can say is that hopefully at, at 58 episodes and, and a lot of the earlier ones you did without me, I can say that the information that has been given to folks, and you can find it, we just collect it and try to make leaps of logic based off of what we're finding. This should give you a much better perspective, like kind of how Crow and I see things when we walk around this everyday world. We don't see things like the guy who, who watches TV 24-7, you know? We see no. things in a different way. We we know a lot more about what's going on because we know how to read those signs with eyes to see and ears to hear, as they say. Right, and I'll give everyone a huge tip that is listening right now. Um, go do a Google image search for Royal Arch Degree or Royal Arch Freemasonry. One of the images you're going to see is going to show like an arching little thing, but what you're looking at is the zodiac with the keystone or the strength, the high point of that image being near the summer solstice when the sun is at its highest or strongest point. You will also see things like the, the Christian encoding of the Bible in this stuff where uh, the bull, the man, um, the eagle, and I always forget the other one um, that that represent the the gospel, the supposed gospel writers. What's actually being encoded there is what's called the royal stars. Um, uh, so you're looking at the bull. You're looking. Oh, the lion is the other one. Regulus the lion. So Regulus would be the heart of the lion, or or one of these ordinal stars. That's what's being encoded here. So much of what is going on here is encoding the sky. A lot of it, and there's more than this. But you've got to kind of shift your mindset over. Anyhow, Jason, we are approaching the top of the hour. Um, so hour two, we're going to get into the founding of America what happened before the actual Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were signed, which is where George Washington starts as the first president. But there were presidents beforehand, and we're going to see how much Freemasonry was involved in the beginnings of our country, and we're going to take that all the way through history up until the modern day. 
it would be a much shorter list to list all the people who were not Freemasons. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure we could make that list. But I think this really one of the things that really pushed this into public consciousness, the idea that Washington was not the first president. Once Prince went somewhere, well, he was still around doing interviews and claimed there was eight presidents before Washington. I remember way back looking at this. Um, Jason found what I did as we prepped for this episode, that the claim is actually that there were 14, um, many of which are Masons, and we're going to get into this. Um, but I will also state for the record, I have looked for a long time at the idea that George Washington was actually King George III. I've seen other people make runs at it. I've never seen a definitive proof put forward. But when you look at their lifespans, they are right there neck and neck. And when you understand that every president, with the exception of, I think, one, can be directly related to royal bloodlines, you start to see the idea behind looking at whether it's even possible if King George III was, in fact, George Washington, simply changing his name a little and changing his outfit and coming over here and co-opting you know, the new world. Um, that's a whole other episode. Anyhow, Jason, is there anything you'd like to add before we bring uh, the first hour to a close? I would invite people to absolutely keep an open eye on everything. There's things far creepier even than Freemasonry that are out in the public image. And a couple of good examples are, what are those spider statues out in front of Rockefeller, yeah. uh, the building and all over the world? Or how about the, the statues of Baal that are, have been being erected the past few years all over the world? There's there's things going on, folks. And, and Crow and I are still trying to figure it out ourselves. But uh, pay attention, man. Something's going on. Well, there's a common thread. Um, anyhow, Jason, before I cut it, why don't you just do a quick run of, of what we're going to cover in the second hour from the actual bullets that we have. So first we're going to do the presidents before the presidency. Then we're going to get into the lodges, how they first came about in America, beginning of the revolution and how all that came about. We're going to get into the interesting figures of George Washington and most especially Benjamin Franklin, who is far, far different than you would have learned about in school. We're going to talk about all the Freemasons that were involved in the actual development of the government of the United States. And then we're going to kind of finish that off with Albert Pike and some of the interesting things he said and did. Yeah, what is it, man? Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. I was looking at a dollar bill the other day, and on the uh, the seal from the Federal Reserve itself, there's actually a Masonic square built into the seal. You just don't notice it because it's positioned like a chevron. But anyhow, um, that does bring us to the top of the first hour of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This was the first hour for episode 58, covering Freemasonry and the founding of the United States of America, which is now just the plain old corporation, the United States. Anyhow, I hope to see you all over at Crow777Radio.com for the second hour. It will be posted there for members. Cheers. 